0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we continue in our study of the series uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living and Looking, living uh, for Christ, looking for His return. Uh, One of the things that as we come to this portion of Scripture in verses 9 through 11 this morning, Paul uh, makes kind of a, a little bit of a turn in his pastoral uh, letter that he's writing. Many of you remember as you've been along with us in our uh, journey through First Thessalonians on Sunday mornings that Paul is writing this letter of encouragement to the folks in the city of Thessalonica, a church that was started or planted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, You can read about its early beginnings a little bit in Acts chapter 17. And because of the immediate opposition that Paul and his companions had to leave the city, and eventually they wound up in uh, Athens and later on in Corinth. But Paul longed, he was only with them maybe a few weeks, but he longed to find out about Uh, their spiritual progress. So he had sent Timothy, his companion, back to the city of Thessalonica. And so Paul's writing of what we call 1 Thessalonians is a response to Timothy coming back and giving this report of what is happening there in the church. And so some of the things that Paul addresses, we make kind of an assumption, they were concerns and issues that the church had, even though uh, Paul was greatly encouraged at their faith. He says that they're Genuine faith has been heard throughout the world, meaning not uh, literally every, but I mean within that known world that their reputation of those who have embraced the gospel of Christ and they are living for Christ. But even in the midst of that, they're facing hardship and persecution as often the case. And so we uh, spent about three weeks looking in the middle of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 concerning events around the return of Christ. And I hope that I answered every question and gave you every date and every prediction and identified the Antichrist, and we just don't have to do any more on that. No, it's kind of like threading a rope, you know, when you, when you talk about the end times. You know, it's, you, there's, there's things that are speculative, there's things you, you know from Scripture, there's hunches, there's things you can be sure of. But the bottom line is, here's the bottom line, is Jesus is returning, okay? So that we're in unity and all agreement. But I do encourage you to go back if you missed those to listen to them. And I hope I didn't create more questions than answers. But uh, we wanted to try to limit ourselves to what the passage said. And I didn't bring in any charts or anything uh, uh, yet. No, I don't have any charts uh, for you. But so Paul makes this... Uh, change, if you will, as he's uh, talking about the uh, second coming of Christ, uh, the catching up of believers, the resurrection of the dead, the believers who are returning with Christ and some of that is, uh, you know, there is still a little bit of a mystery in that of how exactly how all that works. He talked about the day of the Lord. We talked about that last week, which is a time of judgment to unbelievers. Previous, he was talking about uh, the encouragement believers had in, the, uh, in that return of Christ. But then the day of the Lord, as we began in chapter 5, speaks about the judgment of unbelievers, those who have... Uh, who have not embraced Christ and those who have uh, rejected what what happens to sinful men and women who do not respond and remain in their sin and so just that whole conversation it would be maybe kind of uh uh natural for his hearers and maybe for you as well that folks are a little anxious concerning those things concerning the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord or judgment, uh, and maybe it is provoked whether to his hearers or to you, maybe that sense of a lack of assurance of your salvation meaning am i a genu- am I truly a believer am i uh going to be uh am I really ready am I going to face the judgment of God or am i going to be welcoming and receiving Christ when he returns? Uh, what if my faith in Jesus is, is a bit shaky or my love for God and others is lukewarm or cold? Should I have assurance? See, if you're, listen to this, if your assurance of your relationship with Jesus is based on your performance, on what you've done or not done, then you should be anxious about these things. Because that's the whole tenor of the gospel. It is not based on my performance, but based on the performance, if you will, of Christ and the gift of salvation. So Paul, uh, today, he uh, kind of uh, moves and makes a pivot, if you will, from the discussion of the day of the Lord, a time of judgment. The day of the Lord is not something believers need to fear because... We've already faced judgment. Our judgment has already been made in Christ, okay? So that's why we are not fearful of that day of the Lord, but to those who have not, are not in Christ, that day of the Lord and that time of judgment is something that the Bible does speak about and address. And so this morning, I want us to read verses 9 through 11, and the title of today's message is the encouragement of our salvation, the encouragement of of our salvation, So let's read verses 9 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And may God's blessing be on the hearing of his word. This is the word of God. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep... We might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's go to the Lord and pray before we dig into this. Father, this morning, Lord, we are grateful to have your word, but also the living word of Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us, that leads us, that has breathed upon the words of this book that has inspired these words. Father, my words are not inspired. Your words are inspired. Your your scripture is God-breathed. And so I pray that today as we open, Lord, this will of God, the Word of God, listen to it, apply it. We already, uh, in advance, ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would take this word and make it uh, uh, apply maybe with conviction, God, and, and reminders into our own life. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me this morning four pillars of truth built around these verses on the encouragement of our salvation. Four pillars of, of truth by which we can be strengthened Reminded, encouraged as Christians regarding what Jesus has done for us. And if you're not a follower of Christ uh, yet, if you are not one who has uh, crossed over to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then I pray that the words here, that the Holy Spirit will use these to provoke your heart and draw you to himself this morning. But notice, first of all, our encouragement concerning our salvation is, number one, we are encouraged by the purpose of salvation. We are encouraged by the purpose of our salvation. Our salvation is based on God's Purpose. Our salvation is based on God's purpose. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, for God has not, not, he's writing again to Christians. For God has not destined us, the us there are the believers, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word destined uh, is a word that means to. Appoint someone, or appoint someone for something. It is uh, meant to be uh, a determination of something to happen, uh, a determination of events. Jesus used it to remind you, remember when he told his disciples uh, in John 15, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed, destined you uh, for this task. Paul used it of himself in, uh, in 1 Timothy 2.7. Paul says of this himself. He said, for this, his role as an apostle, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. In other words, Paul's saying, I am destined by God. I've been appointed for this. Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews, we're studying Hebrews on Wednesday in verse 2. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, God the Father, appointed, destined the heir of all things through whom he created the world. world. So that word, destined, that we, have, we are not destined us for wrath, but we have been destined for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the other uses of that phrase speak To a determination of someone or something, God. Here's the point: God has purposed your salvation. All right, it's not just random accident. God has destined that. God has purposed that. And in theology, uh, many of you are familiar with this, but by way of reminder, that is the word in scripture and theology. It's a Bible word, but also in theology, the word predestination. Predestination. Now, a lot of times, people uh, stumble around with that word because they think they know what it means, but uh, they don't really understand. It does not mean that we are all pre-programmed robots. You ever, you know, you're in the news. They got robots now that just start doing about anything. Um, uh, you know, from cashiers to whatever. Well, we're not robots. All right. Uh, the Bible clearly shows that individuals we. Make choices. We are held responsible. But here's, here's the thing, and those of you that uh, are a part of our Grace Equip, we studied this last Sunday uh, afternoon, is that our choices are all flawed. Our choices are all messed up. Even the best choice, even the best assembly of wisdom and knowledge that we might make to a situation or purpose with the best of motives is all going to be wrong in some sense. It's not perfect. Why? Because we are broken and sinful people, uh, and our choices are therefore are going to be broken and sinful. And this is why James remind us uh, in James 1, 13-14, we won't look at it, but may want to make a note of it, that we can't blame God for our sin. James 1, 13 and 14. It says, don't blame God. Blame yourself. You're responsible. Don't blame your parents. Some of you are still blaming your parents. You've lived longer on your own. I remember I said that to somebody in my family. I said, you've lived longer on your own than you lived with your mother and father. At what point do you start taking responsibility for your choices and your actions. But as we know from the garden, we all love to be victims, don't we? We want to blame somebody else for our problem. I'm okay, but it's somebody else's problem. Well, yes, we all have been affected by our upbringing. Please don't misunderstand me. But we are still responsible for the choices we make. And that may not be the popular mantra of our culture today, but the Scripture makes that clear. But here's what predestination is. Predestination, its most simplest form, it's real simple, it's not complicated, is that God has a plan. He has had a plan or purpose for the ages. That is the, we talked about the meaning of history last week. It's not random as the evolutionists would have you to believe. It's not cyclical like Eastern religion and Hinduism, you know, that if you do good, you'll cycle back around and maybe get a life up. If you do bad, you might cycle back around and be a dog or a cat. If you're really bad, you might be a roach, you know. Uh, But sooner or later, get that karma working and you'll cycle back eventually. That is not what the Bible teaches. God's Word teaches that history is His story, that God is History, as we look at it, time, God is working out, working in His divine and sovereign plan. There's nothing just randomly happening. God is in control. Now, we, some of us, you know, we might believe that, but we don't really live like it. Because we worry and panic, and we don't really apply that. But that's what Scripture teaches. And so when we talk about predestination, it really is just saying that God has a purpose and plan for everything. And that includes human creatures. That God has a purpose and a plan. You know what Job says in Job 42 too about the sovereign purpose of God. He said, I know, speaking to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. We sang that. And that no purpose of yours is. Can be thwarted. Isn't that, good, isn't that good news? Now, from a human level, if you just take the crucifixion of Christ, you would think that, that somehow that mission got botched. Because things were ran away real quickly and Jesus was crucified. Oh, but if you read what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, you see that Jesus' death was predestined, predetermined by the will of God, using the hands of evil men, like Joseph said to his brothers. You remember that at the end of Genesis? What you meant for evil? God intended purpose predestined for what? For good. And see, we got to remember defining good according to God's definition, not our convenience. That's different. That's why Paul could say at the beginning of Philippians, when he was in jail, where he says, I think around verse 12, he says, I know that these things that have happened to me have actually turned out, paraphrasing, to be and advance God's purpose. He's in jail. But what is he saying? Let me, if I could add a little bit, I'm not to to the word, I'm just kind of massaging his words a little bit. My life is expendable in the kingdom of God. And if God's sovereign purpose is to put me in jail to advance his kingdom agenda, Paul says, remember Philippians is the joy book, right? That's the book he says about being content. I can do all things through Christ. Same guy, same book, same place, same jail cell. Why? Because he settled who was in charge a long time ago. We need to do the same. Isaiah 14.24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will, per- and I will accomplish All my purpose. And so as it connects, remember talking about the purpose of God, this encouragement. You see, the doctrine of God's purpose, the doctrine of predestination should be that which humbles the believer. It should be that which causes what a great and awesome God that in his mercy and grace that God would choose me for himself I know that there's nothing good in me. You've heard me quote what Spurgeon would say. Surely God must have chosen me before I was ever born because he would have never chosen me thereafter. He had a right understanding that he was only in the will of God because it was purpose. Let me say it this way. Because it pleased God. That's what Paul said in Galatians 1. Remember when he's talking to the Galatians, you know, he's really getting on their case because they're abandoning the gospel and getting into all sorts of legalism and stuff. And he talks about his own testimony, about how he was hell-bent, if you will, to destroy the church. And then he has this wonderful statement, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. What Paul? What is Paul saying? That day on the road to Damascus, that was earmarked in God's day timer before the foundations of the world were ever laid. God had that date, that hour, that second, that nanosecond. I don't even know what a nanosecond is. It just sounds like it should be more than a second, right? I mean, God was on time. God could allow Paul to do what he did and what he was doing. But at that moment, guess what? The sovereign hand of God, God is man. Why? Because God purposed it. God purposed it. Paul would write in Ephesians 1, listen to the language here, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It was in love, don't forget that. For God so loved the world that he gave. In love he predestined us. Now if you don't like it, take your black sharpie and just highlight it. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons, and implication as daughters, through Jesus Christ. By what? According to the what? The purpose of His will. For what reason? To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God do it? To be that He would be glorified that he would be glorified. He would say, Paul would say in Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Let me just suggest that if you are not being conformed to the image of Jesus, then maybe you should question whether you're a believer who's been chosen by God because all of his children will be and our being conformed will be like Jesus. And if that doesn't interest you, then maybe you need to step back and say, maybe that hasn't happened to me. Maybe I need to ask Jesus Christ to come into my life and change me, me to throw away my religion, and I need to get a hold of Christ. I need Jesus in my life because if I don't have a desire, if I don't have a, a trajectory to be conformed to his son, then I can't say that that's me. Fair? Yes, it is. Thank you. I'll answer myself in Austin. Thank you. That we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn, a title of honor, among many brothers, and those whom He... What? Notice the order here. Those whom He predestined, He pre-purposed, pre-planned, He has called. And those whom He has called, He has justified. And those whom He has justified... He is glorified. And remember, foreknowledge is not, is not that God looked down the quarters of time in advance and saw that the apostle Paul, that Saul of Tarsus, would choose him for salvation. And God said, Oh, I was hoping he would do that. I am so glad, I I really need that guy, and I'm really glad that he is going to choose me one day, and therefore, because of what he did, therefore, I am going to predestine him to salvation. Listen, that is not what that means. Because remember, God has never learned anything. Jeff, one definition before we move forward. Jeffrey Bromley in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, I thought was really helpful. This quote, God's foreknowledge, look at the words, God's foreknowledge stands related to his will and power. What God knows, God does not know merely as information. He is not a mere spectator. What he foreknows, he ordains, he wills it. That's what foreknowledge is. Why does Paul emphasize this truth so much? You may think I preach about it a lot. But listen, I'm just just following what's next in 1 Thessalonians. Because when you begin to understand the sovereign purposes of God, guess what? You begin to see it on just about every page of Scripture. You're not having to go hunt and find it. It's not a few little pet verses in the back of your concordance or whatever, you begin to see the hand of God working His way sovereignly through the plan of salvation that began in the garden. And you begin to see how God worked His way through the prophets and all the tenor of Scripture bringing forth Christ and that God and His purpose has put me in the middle of that plan. And if that makes you proud and arrogant, then you missed it. It should humble you and make you thankful And humble yourself before the Lord. But why does Paul do it? Because Paul understands that that is the very basis of what we talk about when we talk about salvation. If it is not God's glorification of himself to to bring sinners into himself as believers... That it's God and God alone who has done this. That it is him who is responsible to get all the glory. That is the whole basis, if you will, of the gospel. And listen, it means it means that God has set his love upon you and prepared a glorious future for you. When did he do it? The Bible says that we read in Ephesians 1, he did it before the foundation of the world. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price required for your redemption from sin. So your salvation from God's wrath, verse 9, is secure... Not because, listen, not because of your feeble grip on God, but because of his grip on you, because he planned this salvation, he purposed this salvation, and he will finish and complete this salvation. So read Philippians 1.6 with that in mind on the screen. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You doubt your salvation, you're wobbling, your grip is loosening. Be thankful, Christian, that he's got you in his grip. And that's what John 6 tells us. Jesus said, all that the Father, John six thirty seven through 40, all that the Father gives me, will come. Will come. All. Not going to be any empty seats around that great supper of the Lamb. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, it's always the whoevers, and whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will never cast out. You don't know Christ. You come to Christ today. And he will not reject you. For I have come down, Jesus said, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, look at it, lose nothing. You want assurance? Here it is. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him Should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. We know what Paul talked about, the resurrection. You see, in the context of going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or verse 9, if you could put that back on the screen there, you have two words there. We're either under wrath or we're under salvation. It's either one. There's no purgatory, there's no in-between. You're either under the wrath of God or you're under Christ. In the chapter that we love, the wonderful verse, John 3.16, read all of chapter 3 of John 3, and Jesus put these two together very simply in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. There you go. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And you may say, like I've said, how can I know and be assured that God has chosen me for salvation? And my answer is, if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for your eternal salvation, then you take God at his word that you're in his family forever. Because he said, whoever believes in me shall have everlasting life. Some of you have such introspection, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Just take God at his word. And when I say believe in Christ, I don't mean believe in him like you believe in George Washington or Santa Claus. I mean, you believe, meaning I put my trust in him and him alone. If you were to take your last breath in the next minute and be thrust in before the throne of God, and you were to be asked, Why should I let you in? There's only one answer. There's only one answer. Because Christ died for my sins. He is my life. Like the thief on the cross. He didn't go through any membership classes. He didn't know about the... What is it? The ten laws of salvation, and he, didn't, he never took an evangelism course. He didn't, he didn't know any theology. He didn't even have a clue of what predestined. He didn't know anything about that. You know what he believed? Jesus, remember me. And if he was asked, I don't think he was, but if he was asked, all he had to say is, because the man on the cross said I could be here. That's the only answer that you need. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Do you really believe and have embraced and trusted Christ? If you have, then you can have the encouragement of God's purpose of salvation for your life. But there's a second observation here. Our salvation is based on God's provision through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are encouraged by the provision of salvation. We see that in verses 9 and part of verse 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. How has God provided? God has willed something, but how has God provided This salvation, it tells you right here, through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, who died for us. This is something that Paul uh, would explain over and over again. In fact, remember when uh, I mentioned how the beginning of the church at Thessalonica, this was part of Paul's teaching and gospel mission of what is called the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Uh, in Acts 17.3, uh, Paul says, uh, and I, I don't even know if I put this, there it is, on the screen, he, that he, when he was in the synagogue meeting with the Jews, it says that he was explaining and proving from Scripture, Old Testament Scripture was all they had, that it was necessary. Say necessary. It was necessary. April 15th, it is necessary that you do something Or if you're like me, you get an extension. But anyway, (laughs) it's necessary. Paul said it was necessary. It wasn't just some runaway train of issues. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and be resurrected. Necessary. Why is it necessary? Because without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there can be no remission of sins. And he wasn't talking about us shedding our blood Or as we'll see in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrificial system, all that did was a perpetual reminder that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. But our high priest Jesus died once as our substitute. You say, well, wait a minute, why why was that even necessary? I mean, people wrong me all the time and I forgive them. Why couldn't God just do that? If God did not deal and punish sin, then it would violate his own holiness, his righteousness and justice. The Lord is the righteous judge of the earth. He is the one that says the wages, the earnings, the accumulation of sin is death, not just spiritual death, physical death. But in his great mercy, he gave us Christ to be our substitute. That's why I said that we don't have to fear the wrath of God because Jesus Christ is our substitute. He bore the wrath of God. That's why we don't have to worry about, as believers, I don't, I'm not worried about being under the judgment of God because Jesus is my judgment, if you will. But Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us, demonstrates his love for us, In that while we were still sinners, you could put the word enemies, Christ died for us. You see, your salvation is not based on God weighing the good, weighing the bad, or some track you'll see every once in a while that the devil's voted once, God's voted once, and you get the final vote. That's not biblical. This is a rigged election. You talk about rigged elections? This is the ultimate rigged election. God voted once, and the election was shut down. Because that's the only vote that matters. Now, you may not understand that. There's things, I, a lot of it I don't understand. But you say, God, if it wasn't for you purposing And in your divine purpose, you provided Jesus Christ to bear the heinous ugliness of my sin. Had you not done that, I would be forever and eternally without hope and be lost. For by grace, Ephesians 2 says, for by grace, grace, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith, trust, that's easier. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast and brag. Thirdly, we take encouragement. Thirdly, we are encouraged by the promise of salvation. Our salvation is based on God's covenant promise of eternal life. Listen, what God says will happen, will happen. Where's my confidence? Is it because I feel saved today? I won't ask you to show hands, but I bet every hand of every Christian would be raised if I said, are there days that you don't feel like a Christian? course it's not feeling and that's where when we're constantly living our life from one high feeling to another and we don't have the anchor of God's word to tether our emotions can you trust your emotions I can't they will do those emotions they will deceive me they'll make me do stuff that's crazy and expensive, and get me in trouble. Emotions are unreliable. That's why my emotions have got to be tethered and anchored to truth. And if you're not spending time learning God's truth, you're always going to be a victim of your emotions. How many times in pastoral ministry have people come and say, well, Pastor, I just feel this. I just feel It's time to leave my spouse. I just feel that I want to do this. I want to do that. No. My hope of salvation, talking about the promise, in the darkest moments, as the old Puritan would say, behind every dark cloud is the sun of God's radiance, that I'm anchored to the truth that Christ Jesus is Promised that all that the Father has given him, he would lose none of them. And that I am in Christ again because of what I've done. No. Because of my believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, raised from the dead, He is the one who is the soon coming King, that my trust and my hope is in Him and Him alone, that I have nothing to bring before God except my sin. That without Christ, I am, I am the most, as Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. That without Christ, without that promise, that Jesus Christ is faithful to not only save me. But keep saving me, and will save me, and bring it to completion. If my anchor is not in that truth, then I'm just going to always be like that ship tossed on the ocean. Wavering, wandering. You see, the promise I love. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verses 1-3? through Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms old king james many mansions and if it were not so would i have told you would i have told you that i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and will take you to myself That where I am, you may be also. Is Jesus pulling our leg? Is that true? I believe it's true. Our salvation is based on God's promise of eternal life to all that believe. And the last is that we are encouraged, fourthly. We are encouraged to promote this salvation. What do I mean by promote? We should promote these truths in order to encourage one another, to build one another up, to encourage one another to have the assurance of what Christ Jesus has done. Verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Therefore, Paul says, these great truths encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing You see, to encourage somebody means that you are building them up with your words. You know the little uh, ditty that, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me? You know that's not true. Words do hurt. Words are painful. In fact, sometimes more painful than sticks or stones. And so as Christians, we are admonished In the community of believers to build one another up, to encourage one another up with our words. Paul uh, would combine these uh, words this way. Just listen. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I pray more prayers today of, Lord, keep my mouth shut than I used to. Because as James says, that little thing I said, right? And I'll go into maybe a situation or whatever, and I just say, "Lord, help me keep my mouth shut." And then He does His best, and sometimes I, he, the, that Holy Spirit really tries. One writer said, "Flatter me." and I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, and I won't forget you. Don't we all need encouragement? You may not think that your words of encouragement, even just acknowledging grace among the people, acknowledging a good job that somebody's done. To Kathy, the Supreme leader and founder of Chick-fil-A said, how do you identify someone who needs encouragement? He said, that's easy. That person's breathing. We all need encouragement, don't we? And sadly, I'm guilty of sometimes being too critical and correcting instead of affirming the grace of God in a person's life. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so as a church body, this is what we're talking about, as a church body, we are to promote this salvation. We're to encourage that those who are weak in their faith, how do we encourage them? We encourage them as believers by reminding them of the wonder of what Jesus Christ has done in their life. And that means being conversant enough with your Bibles to go and show them when they don't know. But you got to know where to go. You got to know. Don't give somebody you ever gotten directions from somebody and you realize they had no clue of what you were. And an hour later, you realize they they didn't know where that barbecue joint was any more than I did, right? Look at Ephesians 4 from the New Living Translation. Paul says in Ephesians 4 in the New Living Translation, He said, instead, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. See, we're the body, the church. That's a picture. He makes the whole body, we're all part of that body, fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing in full love. That's why... We have those three C's, and the second C is connect. And if, you, if you're not connecting to the body, you can't really be a part of the building up and encouraging of the body. Get connected. Get involved in something. The menu is set. The tables are set. Show up. Do something. Connect to somebody. Don't be content to just come and slip out in the prayer, and nobody sees you, nobody knows you. Listen, this is a good, healthy place. We are not perfect because I'm your pastor. <laughs> All right? We are not perfect. But listen, this church is a healthy church. Get connected. As I conclude here, um, let me just close with this observation. It's interesting what Paul what Paul. What Paul does here. Maybe don't start playing yet because I'll get distracted too easily. Paul is dealing pastorally with some issues of this church they were struggling with about the death of their loved ones, what's going to happen. You know, there were some real personal things and he's dealing pastorally with them. And what, I find, what is interesting, and uh, John Stott in his commentary pointed this out, so I can't take credit for this. They were concerned and grieving about the loss of their loved ones. Remember, that's the trajectory of those of chapter 4 and 5, and what Paul is saying there. And what is Paul's solution in how he addressed those very personal concerns? His solution, listen to me, his solution... Was theological. Their problems were emotional, but he dealt with them theological. Paul gives them as a salve to their questions and heartaches of their lost loved ones, he gives them the salve of a a dose of God's sovereign election. Of the substitutionary death of Christ and his second coming. He gives them a dose of theology. Now why do I point that out? It's because some have misinformed themselves into thinking that just give me Jesus, don't give me theology. You have no Jesus without theology. And some of you saw this and know that it didn't original with me. It's like saying, I love my wife. And you say, Well, what color are her eyes? Oh, I don't I don't really know. What's the color of her hair? Huh. <laughs> you know, would you know her in a crowd? I mean <clears throat> You love someone, you want to find out all about them. That's what theology is. Don't think you're being more spiritual. By saying, oh, I don't want theology. Just give me Jesus. Well, as I always say, what Jesus do you want? You want the Mormon Jesus? You want the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Because your theology will determine, biblically, what kind of Jesus you have. And let me tell you something. Eternity hangs in the balance that you get that right. Right. You should love truth. And yes, every one of you is a theologian. You just need to be good theologians. But everybody has a theology. man on the street has a theology about something. About God. Or lack of. But you should embrace truth as believers. And you should be like the man Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. That when he found that treasure in the field... He sold everything and he bought that field because of that treasure. You should treasure the supremacy of knowing God so dearly, so passionately that you'll sell everything for that truth, that it becomes precious to you and you want more. You get addicted to truth, not for head knowledge. You get addicted to truth. Because your heart and mind, guess what? This is prequel to eternity. God's just giving you a head start. To know Him should be our passion. But if you're not engaged in knowing God, we're talking about encouragement, this last point. If you yourself aren't drinking from the well of truth, you can't help somebody that's thirsty. Can't. You can't help somebody who's thirsty if you're not dipping deeply into the well of God's living water.